In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Lord says, Amen, I say to you, this generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. It is with a heavy heart, dear faithful, that I commend to your prayers the repose of the soul, the most reverend Robert Molino, Bishop of Madison, who passed away suddenly last night. I had the honor of knowing Bishop Molino even serving his Mass once as he celebrated Mass here. Those who know him know his deep devotion to Holy Mass and his great love for the Mass of all ages, which he celebrated nearly every day. The last thing Bishop Molino would wish for any preacher today to do is to canonize him in any way. We can have no doubt that his earnest wish is that you count him among the faithful departed and therefore in need of your prayers. Nevertheless, in his memory and because of the urgency of the thing, I have printed out for you a copy of the letter which he sent to his flock back in August. You may take a copy of it on the table in Schultz Hall, if you wish. If you have not already read this letter, I certainly hope you will now. Feel free to pass it along to others. If you consider what Bishop Molino had to say to his flock in these dark times for the Church, I hope that your reaction will be the same as mine. How is it that every bishop in the world, without exception, is not capable of writing precisely these same words to their flock? And if, for some reason, there are bishops out there who are not capable of standing by every word that Bishop Molino said in that letter. Any faithful Catholic may legitimately ask the question, why? The death of Bishop Molino will do nothing to drive me off topic today. On the contrary, his leaving the church militant to enter either the church suffering or the church triumphant ties in perfectly with what I wish to say to you today. I have spoken to you on many occasions in times past on this Sunday, this last Sunday of the liturgical year, about the meaning of today's gospel and offered you an exposition on it. If you would desire a refresher, please feel free 
to consult the sermons online. Please don't consult too many, or then you'll become aware of how often I repeat myself. Today, though, I wish the theme to be slightly different. As we reflect on the life of Bishop Morlino and his career in the Church, and that of other courageous bishops in this time, we think about what we're learning in adult theology this year, about the Church Council, and how in times past the Church Council was always convened in order to combat a heresy. The first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea, was convened to combat the heresy of Arianism, the first great heresy in the Church. I put to you, dear faithful, that Arianism is sadly alive and well, not only in the world, but even in the Church. Yes, it remains clearly condemned. But an extraordinary number of Catholics, laymen, priests, and hierarchies, live their lives as though Christ were not divine, as though Christ were not their God, purely and simply. The reason why Arianism got so much airtime in the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries is because it also served a political purpose. As I've told you before, the idea of Arianism and even the competing heresies was that somehow God is not truly present here and now. And sadly, I think that is even somewhat the idea of the name applied to this Sunday after the liturgical reform. We all know that we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King on the last Sunday of October. That was the wish of Pope Pius XI, to emphasize the social reign of Christ the King here and now, in time. After the liturgical reform, this feast was replaced with the observance of this Sunday on the calendar as the Feast of Christ the King. That is, honoring Christ as king, not now, but at the end of time. Christ, it would seem, cannot reign here and now. Among those who live their lives, even in the Church, as though Christ were not divine, as though he were not God with us here and now, some of them even insist on taking a few last pot shots at the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation. They dare to insist that there is some liberty remaining on this question, particularly regarding the knowledge possessed by Christ. And so they dare in their blasphemy to state that it seems Christ here on earth did not know everything. After all, in today's Gospel, he says this generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. 
Yet year after year, generation after generation, we hear this gospel at Holy Mass, and the world is still here. No, dear faithful, I must disagree vehemently with this aspect of the liturgical reform. Today is not a feast of Christ the King. If today is a feast, it is the feast of Christ the Judge. And with all the fathers and doctors, I affirm that this Judge does know and has always known everything. Just ask Bishop Morlino. To be sure, there is the immediate application of our Lord's words. Our Lord spoke the unequivocal truth when he stated, This generation shall not pass until all these things be fulfilled. This prophecy of our Lord was fulfilled to the letter, just as precisely as his prophecy of his own resurrection. Forty years, that is one generation after our Lord's resurrection, the world, known at that time, did come to an end. All of the things which our Lord predicts in today's Gospel came to pass within the space of a generation, culminating in the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and the definitive closing of the Old Testament. Our Lord does and did know everything, and his prophecy was true and sure. That leaves the question, however, of why this Gospel is repeated year after year. Why does the Church insist that we hear this Gospel at the close of every liturgical year. I propose to you a twofold reason for this. One is the fact that although our Lord's prophecy was fulfilled completely in that first generation after his resurrection, like so many prophecies, it speaks also to a later fulfillment. Everything our Lord speaks of in today's Gospel is a prefiguration of the close of the New Testament, the close of the entire universe. But more poignantly for us, when our Lord says this word, these words to us today, when the Lord chooses to have these words repeated at the close of the liturgical year, it is to say to us, this generation is passing for you. And before this generation passes, all these things shall come to pass for you. To speak of this calls to mind Another part of Scripture, one which no Catholic should read without guidance, 
Indeed, this is why some of the craziest heresies of our time come from those who read this last book of the Bible out of mere curiosity, in order hopefully to discover some hidden truth which no Christian for the last 2,000 years has been able to decipher. Thus, when you consider these passages, which when I recall them for you now, will perhaps trigger certain ideas in your head, must understand right away, you must banish from your mind any thought of reading books on being left behind, on being raptured suddenly out of this world, or on our Lord coming to earth to reign for a thousand years before the end of the world. These most obscure passages of the Apocalypse are to be understood the way the Church has always understood them through her Holy Father, never in the abstract. Thus we understand that both by our Lord's words and the words of the Apostles, we are invited today to reflect on that most important doctrine of the particular versus the general judgment. For this is no idea conveniently made up by men. This is a firm handing down of revealed truth. For we hear in the Apocalypse that there is first a first death and a first resurrection, after which the faithful in Christ will reign with Christ a thousand years. Then will come a second death and a second resurrection, accompanied by a public judgment before all the universe. This has always been understood by Holy Mother Church as teaching the doctrine of the particular and general judgment. The first death is the separation of the soul from the body. And the first resurrection is leaving one's body in the state of grace and taking part already in heavenly glory with your soul alone, reigning with Christ in this manner for a thousand years signifies reigning with Christ among the church triumphant during this long period of the New Testament until the close of time. The second death and second resurrection refers to that moment when all souls will be reunited with their bodies and appear before their judge in order to obtain a public sentence and go body and soul to their eternal reward. This is why this passage of the scripture says of those in the first resurrection, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, in these the second death hath no power. That is to say, those who have already been judged worthy of glory in the church triumphant have nothing to fear from the general judgment to come over them, body and soul. 
What then, first of all, is this particular judgment? The particular judgment occurs at the moment when your soul separates from your body. And indeed, this generation shall not pass until this event occurs for you. At that very moment, you shall appear instantly before your judge. That Christ who came to you meek and humble in heart, first as a lamb of sacrifice, then throughout your earthly life as a gentle friend, will appear before you now, already before the public judgment, as a lion. All of the events of your life, all the good you have done, and all the wicked things you have done, all of these things shall appear at once before your conscience. Regarding all of these things, your judge will look at you still with meek and humble eyes and say to you, these things you did to me. But as our Lord tells us also in the Gospel of St. Matthew, what will weigh even more heavenly, heavily on the conscience is all the things that we neglected to do. At that moment of the particular judgment, we will consider most of all all the times we could have done good and chose not to do it. Certainly, first of all, sins of omission. All the times we neglected to speak up for the truth. All the times we neglected to defend someone else's life or reputation and combat sins against charity, stand up for truth and goodness. All the times we played the laxist and refused to correct those under our charge. All the times that parents chose not to gently correct their children for use of devices, immodest dress, listening to bad music. At that moment, when our Lord says that we shall have to give an account for every idle word, we realize as well that we shall have applied to us that same standard of judgment which we have perhaps so cruelly applied to others during life, never forgiving others, never allowing others any room for amendment when we feel ourselves offended. If we have been cruel and exacting judgment on others, that same cruel measure will be applied to us at this dread moment. First then, let us consider the case of those to whom our Lord says 
at this moment. Come ye blessed of my Father, possess the kingdom prepared from you, for you, from the foundation of the world. This is the case of those who leave this world in God's friendship, who at that moment, when they recall all the things of their life, all of their deeds, all of their misdeeds, all of their neglects, will nevertheless be able to say that they availed themselves of the opportunity to live as saints here on earth. When all those opportunities come to mind, all those times when they had a choice, whether or not to attend Holy Mass, whether or not to make a holy hour, whether or not to make the first Friday and first Saturday devotions, whether or not to visit cemeteries and pray for those who have gone on before them, if the answer is that yes, they did avail themselves of those avenues of grace, then their debt will already be paid. They will have by their free cooperation applied to themselves already the full merits of Jesus Christ. And so with all their sins and punishment already expiated, they shall proceed directly to their part in the church triumph. Then there is the case of those who, as the Apostle says, will have their work tried by fire. Yet if they themselves leave this world in God's friendship, they shall nevertheless be saved, yet so as by fire. Indeed, our Lord will assure them at that moment of their death that they will be welcomed into heavenly glory. In his love and mercy, he will not condemn them to eternal punishment for the fact that they left this world weighed down by venial sins and temporal punishment. Sadly, they chose not to pursue a life of perfection here on earth. They chose not to be perfect as their Heavenly Father is perfect. They chose not to avail themselves at every moment of the graces necessary to enter straight into heaven. Our Lord now gives them that opportunity. They shall go to a place of indescribable suffering, but a place as well of indescribable joy and love. For purgatory is filled with the love of God. It is, as I often say, saint school. It is for those who left this world in God's friendship, but sadly did not choose to live the life of a saint here below. And so our Lord does not send them to hell. He sends them to that beautiful school of the saints, which is purgatory. Without they learn to live as a saint lives, that is, to live with the indescribable suffering of being separated from the object of your love. For this is the suffering which the saints endure here on earth. For they love only God, all other things they love through God. And therefore, life on earth, despite its joys, is for them an indescribable suffering as they long for the moment when they may see God in the face.
Finally, there is the case of those who will appear before our Lord at this moment. Throughout their life, they have had the choice to commit sin and have chosen that path. The chance to repent, neglected. So many graces placed in their path and spurned right up until the moment of final impenitence. Appearing now before their judge, they have nothing to say except the words of the psalmist, Thou art indeed just, Lord, and thy judgment is right. Faced now with the love of God bombarding them directly, they wish only to flee from that object of love which in the end they refuse to love here on earth. Seeing all the sins of their life, all their sins of commission and omission, right up until the moment when they gave that last no to their Creator, they can only desire to flee as quickly as possible from the sight of God and enter that place where, as Job said, everlasting horror dwelleth. That place where they may forever hide their faith from God, forever repel His love, such that we cannot even understand the meaning of the fires of hell, although they are real. Because how can they possibly compare to the suffering of being separated from what should be the sole object of our love? After this dread judgment, which we must all soon undergo, none of us knowing the day or the hour which is fast approaching, what purpose serves the general judgment? Why, after all this, go through yet another judgment? If you are unsure as to the answer to this question, I strongly encourage you to reread your catechism, especially the Catechism of Trent. But I will call to mind today two points in particular. The first being that as everything we did or failed to do was something we did as men, that is, body and soul, justice demands that we be judged body and soul. And so at the end of time, when we all must rise again with our bodies, we must be judged for all that we did and how the body as well took part in our decisions. Secondly, we must understand that none of our sins committed here below, none of our neglects, are simply done in the abstract. They are all done as members of the fallen race of Adam. Everything we do or fail to do 
has an impact on other people. On that day of general judgment, we shall see that many of the sins of others were due, at least in part, although they had free will, to the sins that we first committed, or to the times that we neglected to teach or steer people in the right direction. True justice then demands that there be a general judgment, that the sins of all be laid bare before the entire universe, so that just judgment can be declared before all. This image of the general judgment should be familiar enough to all. Looking again to that same book of the Apocalypse. I saw a great white throne, and one sitting upon it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing in the presence of the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hell gave up their dead that were in them. And they were judged, every one, according to their works. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the pool of fire. As we come now to the close of the liturgical year, let us reflect that for some of us here, this last Sunday after Pentecost may indeed be our last Sunday after Pentecost here on earth. The new liturgical year about to dawn may be, for any one of us, the year in which we are called suddenly to appear before our judge. Let us decide then from this moment to live every moment remaining for us as saints, to avail ourselves of every opportunity for grace, so that when that moment does come, we may hear those words, Come, ye blessed of my Father, possess the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It is the only tragedy that can ever befall man. It was a tragedy not even meant to be for man. No one can bear to hear those words of our Lord in the Scripture. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. We often forget that he adds, that fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. This fire was not prepared for us. It was not meant to be. It is the only tragedy that can ever truly befall any man dying in the state of mortal sin. All of the tragedies in this life are to pass away. For we are told in that same book that at that time God shall wipe away those tragedies. Every tear shall be wiped from our eyes. Death shall be no more. No mourning, no crying, no sorrow. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Amen.